Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I join David Bellis of the Hong Kong history website, Gwulo.com. Firstly, to hear about some of the photos that David will be showing at a photo talk next Saturday, June the 1st, which you're very welcome to attend in Kennedy Road. Later in the programme, David Bellis will tell me about his latest findings at the National Archives in the UK. And finally, we'll have a little section called Grulo Gubbins, which are a few bits of this and that where people have written in with photos or requests for information. So first, here's David Bellis talking about his upcoming photo talk. Well, they asked me for a talk and I wasn't quite sure what I'd do. So I said, well, I'll do a talk about people thinking I'll go back later and work something out. <laughs> and I have to say, I'm still... still uh, juggling the photos. So I've gone through my collection, scanned anything with a bit of a people-y theme. I've decided to cut off at about World War II, so it's like the first hundred years of colonial Hong Kong experience. And that gives us about 160 pictures. And we can probably show about, mm, about 30, 40. So now it's trying to find the threads that link them together. I've got a few ideas, and I've brought a few along here to show you. Sport is a common thread. Sport turns up a lot. And I think it's because throughout that first hundred years or so almost everyone in Hong Kong was a visitor and as a visitor you're looking to fit in and so you get groups based around where you come from groups based around where you work and you'd go and play sports that was often a way to fit into society there and if you can see the back of this photo here and perhaps read out can you make out the handwriting gosh uh, November the 21st uh, is that 1909? 1909 after a game of cricket no, it's a game of crochet. Oh. So, competitive crochet, you can just hear the knitting needles cl <laughs> clattering away in the background. Actually, it's someone who can't spell very well, but let me show you the picture and if you can... Uh, croquet. Croquet, that's right. So here they are standing with their mallets and their hoops. Um, first picture I've ever seen of croquet in Hong Kong, so I was quite excited to, to get this one. Yes, and uh, there's sort of the ladies with long sort of puffy sleeves and long skirts. Each man has a hat. Not just a hat, a nice bushy moustache as well. <laughs> so one of the one of the threads, I don't know if I'll have enough pictures to do or not, but I was thinking of doing a moustache meter So when you look at a picture, <laughs> if you've got ten men, how many moustaches can you count? And I think by that number you'll be able to date it pretty accurately. There must be some sort of equation we can do there. It appeals to the mathematician. Potfulham, not sure exactly where. There were a few sort of European clusters out there. There was the, the waterworks. They had some houses, a bit like the one in this picture. There was a police station. Do you know the little road that goes up by the stables? And just as you go in on the left, there's a flat area used as a car park now. Well, that used to be the Potfulham police station, so perhaps linked to them. Do you know you can still play a very similar game to croquet in Hong Kong? Have you come across that? No, I haven't. No, not me. I, I was walking through Sham Sho Po Park a couple of months back and came across a sign that said Gateball, which I'd never heard of. But anyway, Gateball, I think invented in something like the 40s, 50s. It's a, it's a faster derivative of croquet. And there is a Hong Kong Gateball Association and parks scattered throughout Hong Kong. So, yes, a lovely picture here of uh, a group, perhaps a family, uh, with a little girl on the right there. Um, and that's, uh, is that sort of from Edwardian times? That would be about right, isn't it? Yeah, like the early 1900s. Look quite similar to other, other photos we have from that time. The earliest views I have, I don't have photos because they're exorbitantly expensive, but you can get engravings quite cheaply. So this is from the Illustrated London News, 
December 30, 1882. They are little sketches. Um, either a sketch would be made here and sent back, or sometimes they'd send a photo back, and that would be uh, turned into the engraving. You've got to be a little bit careful with them because there's often a fair bit of artistic license. The person making the engraving obviously never been to Hong Kong and you know, sometimes gets it a bit wrong, but, but these are pretty accurate. So what have we got? We've got several people with the shoulder poles, some sedan chairs. We've got a rickshaw race that ends up in disaster down here. And one of the little curiosities is this rickshaw has got two people in. So we always imagine the scene of you know, one person in a rickshaw, but that only came in about this time in 1882. And for the first couple of years, they were much bigger and two-seater. And down the bottom, the picture I'm looking for is a photo of two policemen a Chinese policeman and an Indian policeman. So at this time, the police force split into three groups. You had the European police, the Chinese police, and the Indian police. And if we look at the next picture, here we have a nice few Chinese policemen. Color postcard, very unusual, because at this time, you didn't have color photography. And again, that leads to problems, because the person doing the painting Again, never seen the view. So this was probably done in the UK, where policemen wear blue clothes. So here we have a, a Chinese policeman in his nice blue outfit, and in fact they wore green. Oh, really? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Historically, completely inaccurate, but nice to look at. More Chinese policemen. And those are gaiters at the bottom, aren't they? Yeah, I think so. I think that's the technical word. <laughs> if we're going for gubbins, we can have gaiters too. <laughs> the uniform is actually modelled, I think, on a... The sort of the Chinese style of the time, a Chinese uh, sort of fairly low official. That's why they had this look. Do you recognise the building? Is that the Central Police Station, or as was? No, it's actually a trick question, because this was the um, Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee celebrations in London, and they shipped a, a group of ah. Chinese policemen over there, and that's, uh, that's where this picture was taken. So the Diamond Jubilee would have been at something like 1888? Um, 97, I think. Was yes, that's right. It's 60 years. I'm doing 50. Yeah. Yes. Gosh, because she was, well, Queen Elizabeth II has now bypassed the, the, in the longevity stakes in terms of being on the throne. But uh, I think Queen Victoria was upwards of 60 years, wasn't she? Yes. And if you were in Hong Kong at that time, as a, from the start of Hong Kong, a British colony, then that, that happened just about the time that Victoria comes to the throne. So, you know, for, it seems like forever the two are, are connected. So this is a, a photograph of, uh, is that two women in stocks? Yes, two ladies in the, in the stocks there. They had portable stocks. So the idea was that wherever you had committed the crime, that's where you would be exhibited. So none of sort of being tucked away out of, out of sight, you were shamed where it had actually happened. So they've got a, a board in front of them, and that'll be explaining what their crime was and what their punishment is. One of the lady, you can see her bare feet pointing at us, but one's got shoes, so somebody you know, quite well off. You don't know, unfortunately, what the crime was. We're looking at the policemen in this picture. As I say, they were grouped into just Chinese and Indian and British, but there were much finer divisions with them as well. So here we've got three Indian policemen, but if you look carefully, only two have beards. And so they look as though they've all got these big turbans, but one's kind of a fake turban. So the, the Muslim um, policeman in the middle, his just went on and off like a cap. And the, the two on either side, the Sikh, they actually had the full wound up with the hair turban going on there. So this is the, uh, the Sikh temple. Oh, is it really? Where was that? That's quite a, 
kind of grandiose building there. So is that still at the? So that would have been the the original building in Wan Chai. Yes, at the bottom of Stubbs Road, just on that corner there, isn't it? Same site. It was destroyed in World War Two. Um, American bombs actually uh, hit it and, and knocked it all down. We think of it as the Sikh temple, but reading about the funding, it was actually a joint venture of the Sikh and the Hindu communities, which I, I hadn't realised. And then later on, the Hindu group uh, branch off and get their own temple up in Happy Valley there. Yeah, and this is a... I mean, uh, the actual photograph is, is rather lovely. You've got lots of arches on this original building, so it looks like three-storey, although the main story is the, the one in the middle, and then everybody's on the roof, so maybe two-storey plus roof. And um, you've got... Uh, lots of men with their turbans. Um, I'm not seeing many women on that photograph, but lots of men um, who are obviously members of this uh, early community in Hong Kong. Yes, it's sort of sticking with that visitor theme as well. The other, other time this has come up in, in the website, uh, some of the families who've gone to Canada, the Indian families who've gone to Canada. So the Sikh temples have a uh, a sort of history, a culture of being very, very generous to travellers and letting people stay there who are passing through. So the Indians who were heading off to the west coast of America, their ships would have called in at Hong Kong and they may have stayed there for some time. So I think there's, there's probably a story there to be discovered. So this is the the photoshopping, and this again, this is something I've just been been learning about a little bit more, that the old photographers were just as happy to <laughs> make you look a bit better. Fake news! Yes, well, reading about it yesterday, they, they wouldn't just smooth out your complexion. They might cut away, you know, if they thought your chin was too big. They could, they could really do just about everything. And it was all done with a sharp knife scraping away at the negative and then darkening a little, little spot here and there. So this group of men, probably in Happy Valley, we've got riding boots on, we can see. They all sat down with their, what are these called, pith helmets. So some sort of equestrian event has just been going on. Uh, this picture's got a good story. Have you come across Dave Willett at all? He's the, the snake man from Sai Kung, the snake catcher. And as well as an eye for snakes, he's got an eye for finding treasure in the rubbish tips. And he found this picture in his, in his village waste area. It's, uh, I guess, a, a father and his family here, lots of children. And what era? Well, the photographer that is printed on here, he was in business from about 1880 to 18, late 1890s, so end of the... 1800s. It's a lovely picture. I mean, it's an entire family. You've got the uh, uh, the man of the house and then the, the matriarch sitting down, um, but then you've got all the different generations around in very traditional clothing and, and that very serious face that the children, you know, having to stand there for quite some and, and with curiosity as well, and um, and all well dressed, all with shoes. Yes, this was a wealthy family. It's a big family. They're in a photo studio. You can see the, the, the back cloth here has been set up. Um, but no one's smiling. It seems in the old uh, Chinese family pictures, you know, no one was allowed to be doing the smiling. So if you'd like to attend David's talk, it's at the Hong Kong Visual Arts Centre in Kennedy Road at 10.30am on June the 1st. If you go to David's website, grulo.com, you can find out about the talk under dates for your diary on the front page. The details are also available at the Hong Kong Heritage Facebook page. David also told me about a recent visit he made to the National Archives in London, the official archive and publisher for the UK government, with more than 1,000 years of national documents. Oh, I love going there. Yes, it's, uh, it's really like Christmas. You, you turn up 
and it's a huge building. And first of all, it's just this fantastic operation. Whatever you ask for, about 30 minutes later, it arrives for you to pick up. And obviously, I'm just looking at Hong Kong stuff, but you've got people from all over the British Empire, all over Britain. You've got uh, people walking out with sort of 800-year-old scrolls with the big wax seal on the bottom. And you know, it's just all sorts there. And you think whatever it is, 30 minutes, and it's out to see. I don't know how they do it. It's, it's wonderful. So what happens? Is that queue? Is it all in the same? Because I often hear mentions of queue as well. Is that, is that the same outfit? Yes, that's right. They're... You go to Kew Garden Station. It's a short walk along from there, quite a modern building. If you are going, it's worth just reading their instructions because you can go and do online research, and they have a lot online. But if you want to handle the, the original documents, you need to get a reader's ticket, and you need to turn up with um, a couple of proofs of address. So if you, if you go all that way and don't have that, you know, it would be a bit disappointing. But once you've done that, then you sign in, you request the documents, and as I say, 30, 40 minutes later, you've, you've got them in your hand. So for proof of address, you need an English address? No, no, they just need an address. So a, a gas bill, say, from Hong Kong, that would be fine. And what sort of things were you looking for? I've usually got three groups of things in mind. Uh, sometimes I'm going with a specific document that someone's mentioned to me. Other times I just like to search broad categories and see what turns up. So I'm, I'm looking for maps, for photos, and then for things about people. And what are the National Archives? I mean, they, they go back, is that just like hundreds and hundreds of years of British history? Well, yeah, literally, I've seen people with, with documents that, you know, three, four, five, six, seven hundred years old. Uh, these very fragile, um, the parchment type things all rolled up. And as I say, the big wax seals that you, you see on the old movies. Um, and the fantastic thing to me is that you well, you're treated like an adult, you know, you're given this stuff. You don't have people hovering over your shoulders or whatever. You're allowed to look at it. Um, they're very well set up with stands for photos. They've got um, good lighting that you can move around. They've got all the, all the bits and bobs that you need so you can set stuff up and photograph because a lot of this material, if you sit and try and read it, you're only going to see two or three documents. So I tend to go and photograph it as much as I can and then come away with a couple of thousand pictures of it and then digest it slowly over, over time later. So what sort of items were you looking for? A couple of visits ago I came across naturalisation as a, as a term that when you search for that, interesting things come up. So these were non-British subjects living in Hong Kong and they were applying to become a British subject. We were talking just before we recorded, we were talking about the Russian community and so how many of them had gone to, say, Vladivostok, and then after the Russian Revolution, they'd been pushed down into Harbin and Shanghai, ended up in Hong Kong in the 30s as stateless people, and they, they wanted to, uh, you know, get passports and get back into the, the system, and they applied to become British citizens. So the applications that they send in, it's not a whole ton of information, but if you can spare a moment, I'll pull one up here. So here we are. I, Sergei... Patrovich Piankov of the Peninsula Hotel, Kowloon in the colony of Hong Kong, Master Baker, solemnly and sincerely declare and say as follows that I am a former subject of his Russian Imperial Majesty's Empire. And then it goes on, it talks about his father, his mother, gives us the full names when he first arrives in Hong Kong. So it's just all these little bits of details. We've we known the name from our war diaries, and this sort of fleshes out their background a bit more. And it also answers a few questions. There were, there were three people that we kind of knew were related. 
But one's the father who kept his original Russian name. One's this gentleman who changed to one surname, and his brother chose a different surname when he chose an English name. So three apparently disconnected people. We've, you know, we can trace back now and join them all up and, and put them in the right place in the family tree. That's so interesting from the sort of uh, genealogy aspect. Is that of course, if people are changing their names, and that's the that's quite a major issue with people going into America. A lot of Chinese families going yes. into America that, that they're just not written down properly. So these people get lost in the system somehow. So he's looking to become a British subject. Yes, and he does. He, he does become a British subject, and I think it was probably as a result of that that he was able to bring his parents down because when he's applying, his parents are still in Russia. But a bit later, we know they're in Hong Kong, and we know a bit more about them because Brian Edgar's father, also a baker, working in Lane Crawford, and the people mentioned here, the Piankovs, they later went to Lane Crawford as well, and they were colleagues of Brian's father. Interesting. I also like the fact that you've got more people in regular jobs rather than history. As often, I find. Is, is your prime ministers, is your governors, and things like that. I love the fact that um, you know, we're talking about people in regular daily jobs um, and, and what their life stories were. Yes, no, exactly right. And, and it's often the, those little stories, you know, the, the average guy's day, what he was doing, that tends to get lost. And so it's a, it's a treasure when we, when we find it. Here's another one that came up in the naturalizations this time. This is Mr. Bigazzi. Have you come across his name? I think he's the guy who did that very colourful ceiling in the HSBC. Oh, the mosaic. Yeah, the mosaic. The 1935 building. Yeah, unfortunately all gone by the time I got here, but pictures of it, absolutely beautiful. This great colourful barrel, is that the way they describe it? Barrel vaulted ceiling and these colourful mosaics there. If, if you haven't seen it, I recommend you do a, a Google and look at the pictures. Fantastic. It also pops up with Queen Victoria. You know, her statue disappeared in World War II and came back, and I think he was somehow involved with uh, repairing it and, and getting it ready to go to Victoria Park. Interesting. So that was uh, Mr. Bagatzi. Mr. Bagatzi. Um, so he was looking to become a naturalised British person as well. Yes, that's right. So a couple of examples of that. What else have we got? Stanley. And this is kind of the mundane side of, of history, but it's the stuff that, you know, that's got to be done. You talk about perspiration and inspiration. This is the perspiration part of it. So this is the nominal role. This is the British have gone into Stanley Camp at the end of the war and they've done a great long list of everyone who's there. So this is the Stanley internment camp which held the civilians uh, uh, that were interned in Hong Kong. Exactly, exactly, that's right. And so you've got the date here, we're 11th to 14th of September, so very shortly after liberation, and they're just doing, a, uh, as I say, a name of who's who because they had this huge project then is to get everyone home you know it's this fantastic uh, if you talk to Barbara Anslow about it she sort of says it, it gives her shivers still to work out how they possibly got all these people from all around Asia on the right ships back to Britain there was a train waiting for them that took them down to London when they got there they had an ambulance which they they put sort of four or five people into and the ambulance took them to the the right villages and you know and the people knew they were coming and we're waiting with a big welcome for them. That is incredible. That is an extraordinary operation. Barbara Anzler, of course, who's 100 years old and uh, is still going very strong in Essex in southeast England. She's recently published her war diary, which is called Tin Hats and Rice, and that's published by Blacksmith Books. But she's still giving talks um, in, in London. Yes. Yeah, just last weekend she had a sellout talk and she, she wrote back to me and 
you know, said how well it had gone and that she's just been booked for another one in <laughs> near at home uh, October, I think. The last ones were a, a set from Kai Tak. We have a... Oh, so much later. Hmm. This is uh, 50s. They haven't built the big runway out into the harbour yet. It's the old original one. It's a nice aerial, aerial view of the airport. Um, quite a few of the regulars on the website are keen on that. And one of them, Ian Johnston, who's a real expert on local aviation history, he pointed me at this document, which is great. I wouldn't have seen it otherwise. It's got these very early pictures here. So this is the reclamation for Kaitak, but this was back when it was going to be a housing scheme. And you can see of the, I guess, four large sections. So the outer three have been done. The middle is still not reclaimed yet. So this would be a pretty about early 1920s. Uh, and this is fantastic. This is a view I, I haven't seen before. So that was your trip to the National Archive. Now, what sort of Grulo Gubbins have you got today? The Governor's Hat. Who knew this could be exercising Grulo's readers? Yeah, of course, the Governor's sort of hat had, had feathers on it before. I mean, I don't yes. think our last Governor, Chris Patton, didn't bother with all that pomp no, and circumstance. he broke the tradition, wasn't yeah, it? That's but then, right. But then he was a politician, wasn't <laughs> he? He didn't believe in all that government pomp. No. So before they were on the Governor's Hat... Which bird did the feathers come from? <laughs> yeah. So we started off with ostrich. We had a little side tour into egret. Was it perhaps an egret feathers? But the winner apparently is swan. Swan feathers. Oh, really? Yeah. So follow the discussion at... Uh, and did they get replaced or are they sort of like decades old? I mean, was it the same hat? With the go or did the governor get a new uniform and a new hat? Oh dear, now that's going to be a whole new conversation, isn't it? We're going to have to find that out as well. We'd only got as far as working out the swans, unfortunately. Nowhere further than that. Ron Wallace, he wrote in, he was here in the 50s, early 50s. Um, he was here with the 54 Squadron of the Royal Engineers, and he's one of the men that built Route Twisk. So he sent in some photos of him on a, these giant bulldozers. He said the initial shaping of the land was done by this army of local labourers with pickaxes, and then the the graders and the, the bulldozers came in and sort of shaped it into the, the right shape. Now, does Root Twist still uh, exist today? Yes, yes, of course, it's still there. So this was, this was built originally to link Setcong and the border with the military operations down in Kowloon because all of the focus around the 50s was worrying about an invasion coming in across the, the border there and needing better transport. So this cuts it from something, and it used to be this big road that you went around to Yunlong and Tun Moon and then back to Chun Wan. And then this just comes up over Taimo San and it, it drops from 20-something miles to something like seven miles, so much quicker. Route Twisk runs from Chun Wan to Sekong, and I've only realised today that that's a twisk. Yeah. So it's TWSK. TWSK, that's right. If there happens to be anyone with a connection... Ron is really hoping to hear from some of his mates who are there with him, I guess all in the 80s now. So this is Ron Wallace of the 54th Squadron of the Royal Engineers, and so he was part of building Route Twisk. Yes, he was one of the, the team that did all the carving with their giant bulldozers. Now here's a, another Russian connection, a Mrs. Nozadze, I guess we'll pronounce it. Your Russian's excellent. <laughs> and she was a piano teacher here in the 50s. So I'd be interested to hear from anyone who was learning there. We've got a, a couple of photos and we've also got a, a couple of programmes from so, some of the events. So that's spelt, uh, her name was N-O-Z-A-D-Z-E. That's N-O-Z-A-D-Z-E. This is uh, her granddaughter um, has been gathering the family information. 
and yeah, just interested to put names to faces and get uh, memories, I guess, of people who were there. So this piano teacher was her grandmother? Her grandmother. And who's the granddaughter? Well, the granddaughter is Nona, Nona Piorowski. I think the family changed their name to Park later. Again, it was you know, very common at that time for the Russian families to choose more um, anglicised name. And she's been documenting her family's history. Her, her website's fantastic. It's, it's so Nona, N-O-N-A, P-I-O-U-L-S-K-I. And I think she's also got a, a Facebook group, which is for the, the Russian community that were in Hong Kong around this time, 1950s. Yeah, it's a fascinating group. And where's Nona based? I think Nona's in Australia now. Sticking with the Russian theme, you had an inquiry from a lady called Natasha. Yes, Natasha sent in some photos, also Russian families. And this is a little bit of history that was a complete surprise to me. So the Russian families that came here in the 30s, we've had several cases of. But this was a group of Russian refugees coming to Hong Kong in the 1960s. And they'd come from Xinjiang. So it must have been a little Russian enclave who'd stayed on after the well, first of all, after the Russian Revolution and then after the Chinese Revolution, and somehow in the 1960s were coming here to Hong Kong. And she's trying to find out more about the group. So the group, I think, came to Hong Kong in the 60s together, and then, as often the case with refugees, were, were spread out around the world as they found new homes. And she'd love to find some contacts with the people in the photos here. Her mother's here, and then her grandmother and her great-grandmother are here as well. Her mother's still alive, and... You know, there are other people of a similar age in the picture perhaps we could, could get in touch with. So let's see what, uh, what she tells us. My mother was known as Leah Gershevich when she was in Hong Kong. She was a Eurasian uh, young lady. She's called Lily Wang now. Her mother and grandmother came to Hong Kong in about August 64, stayed here till April 66. Russian refugees from Xinjiang, China, along with many other Russian families. We settled in a hotel off Kimberley Road and later, they all went on to live in Christchurch, New Zealand, where the majority of the families still live. Although my sister and I are actually in Hong Kong at the moment. That's right. So in the picture, she points out a Swedish missionary who was at the back. He apparently was from Germany, spoke Russian well, and used to take the Russian church service at the YMCA every Sunday. So if anyone's got memories of Russian services in the YMCA in the 60s. Done by a Swedish missionary. That's fascinating. That's a pretty distinctive combination, isn't it? And then on the left of the photograph, you've got this chap with a beard. I suspect he looks a bit Russian himself. Well, she mentions him as well. says, the man with the beard and the lady next to him are not a couple. Can't remember who he is, but the lady and her daughter also came to New Zealand and lived in Wellington. So they've got sort of these little memories. But, of course, the mum at the time was, was quite a young young lady so she wouldn't have known all the stories of the people and also this sort of international aspect about the fact that uh, the whole family is a mix of russian and chinese yes, so they're probably to add to the story yes. as well so it added extra complications in, in sort of tracing family roots second photo that she's posted she says the elderly lady without a scarf in the back row is someone special she was a missionary in china for many years read wrote and spoke chinese perfectly but after the communists came to China, she came to Hong Kong and carried on her missionary work with refugees from China and mainly Russians. And she was from Sweden as well. So another, another missionary connection. So I think, I think a lot of the missionaries from China ended up here in Hong Kong around that time, didn't they? They got sort of expelled from China and came here. And, of course, their language skills were all around Mandarin, not, not so useful here with, with the Cantonese, but 
as the refugees from the mainland came here, then their, their skills came into their own. My thanks to David Bellis of Grulo.com. If you'd like to go to David's photo talk next week, it's organised by the Royal Asiatic Society, Hong Kong and China branch, and you can find the details on Grulo.com under Dates for Your Diary or on the Hong Kong Heritage Facebook page. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>